Father, our hearts resonate with what we have just sung. Come see the cross where love and mercy meet. As the Son of God is stricken, and then see His foes lie crushed beneath His feet, for the conqueror has risen. He has risen indeed. And having risen, He is not only alive Himself, but He becomes our life as well. And just as He is alive when we are in Him, we also are alive. Alive in Christ and dead to sin. Thank you, our Father, that this is our position, this is our reality, this is what we are. And we pray, our Father, that this morning, as we consider some key verses in a key chapter, that we might also live in increasing way the reality of what we are. And that we might be more faithful and more effective in putting to death that to which we have already died. And so would you guide us, instruct us, keep us steadfast as we consider our life in Christ and our relationship to the flesh. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. On a very limited number of occasions, once for sure, maybe twice, I've reached what I thought was the end of my physical limitations. I just could not go any further. My arms and legs trembling with weariness out on a hike with my brother and wondering if I'd be able to make it back to our destination. My body was at its end. On a few occasions, I have watched sporting events and seen athletes expend themselves on the field to such an extent that they had to be carried off the field by teammates, not because of a particular injury, but just because of absolute exhaustion. They had nothing left, nothing left to give. Numerous times I've stood at a bedside as someone is approaching the end of life. The body failing from weariness and the cumulative effect of a lifetime of ills and weaknesses bringing them to a final breath. Those manifestations of weariness and many more are not uncommon experiences to us. We, we know of those. They're a reality to us sometimes even on a very regular basis. But there's another kind of weariness as well that I want to draw your attention to this morning, and it is spiritual weariness, a a spiritual weariness that tempts one to say, I quit. I've done everything I can do. I can't do it any longer. I'm tired. And the attraction of sin is too much. It's too strong. It's overwhelmed me. I'm done. Of all of the dangers of spiritual weariness, this is the greatest danger. The danger of not warring against sin. In his book, Comrades, historian Stephen Ambrose writes this about the nature of war. Combat, he says, requires all the nerves, all the physical attributes, every bit of the training. 
It is only in combat and nowhere else where time is measured in other ways than by clocks or calendars. Only in combat does the soldier realize that he is in the worst situation that can ever be imagined, that nothing else can compare to it, and that the longer he stays where he is, the more likely that he will be dead. Or, if he is extremely lucky, he will be only wounded. Only in combat is one in a position in which young youngsters his age he doesn't know has never met are trying to kill him. And he is trying to kill them. End quote. While Ambrose was writing about the nature of physical war, his description is fitting as an analogy of the spiritual life as well. The spiritual life is war. Our spiritual battle is infinitely more costly and has more implications for victory and loss than physical war. And the enemy we battle is far more devious than any worldly commander. And the general we serve is far greater in equipping us than any earthly general. If we succeed in the spiritual battles we face, we will need to assume the mindset that we are not on vacation, but that we are in a succession of battles against sin. We are not only fighting to save our souls, we're not doing that because only God can save our souls, which is what Romans 4 is all about, but we are in a battle to live out the salvation that God has granted to us. That's Paul's point in Romans 6 and especially in verses 12 to 14. Because we are identified with Christ's death and Christ's resurrection, we must therefore... Not let sin reign over us. Sin is not our master. And because sin is not our master, we should not live in a way that makes it appear as if sin is our master. And that is the heart of our battle. And it is a battle that we must be steadfast to fight. This year we're thinking about the theme of being steadfast. And over the course of the year, I want to take us through a number of principles and important themes around this idea of steadfastness. And I can think of nothing more important at the moment that we remain steadfast against sin. It is insidious, isn't it? I dare say that Some of you have already fought wars this morning, battling temptations, and you thought, it's Sunday morning, where did that come from? It is always there. It is worth noting that in this passage, Paul does not use the words, be steadfast or endure, but he does use words like consider, do not let sin reign, do not present yourselves to sin, and he uses those verbs in the present tense. And that tense means that it ought to be an ongoing, continual, or perhaps habitual kind of pattern in our lives. It has the same sense and resonates with being steadfast. He's compelling our ongoing, steadfast, unwavering battle against sin. As we come to these important verses, I want to summarize the theme of this passage in this way. Because we are united to Christ, 
be steadfast to fight against sin. It is out of the overflow of your unity with Christ. It is out of the overflow of your salvation in Christ. It is out of the overflow of the Holy Spirit baptizing us into Christ, connecting us to Christ. That's the first part of this chapter that we fight against sin. It is the reality that we have been connected to Jesus Christ and that he is our life and we are no longer dead that fuels our strength for our fight against sin. We're in a battle. The question is, how will we fight that battle? And we will fight that battle, Paul says, by living out four implications of our union with Christ. I want to draw your attention in these three verses to four implications of our union with Christ. Because we are unified to Christ, because we have been saved in Christ, connected to him, that informs and brings implication for how we fight against sin. Principle number one, verse 12. Be steadfast not to let sin rule in your life. Be steadfast to not let sin rule in your life. It is notable that in this significant and theological treatise that Paul is writing, laying out the gospel and the implications of the gospel, it's really a missionary letter. He's soliciting funds from the Romans to guide him on his missionary venture to Spain. And out of that, he's articulating, I'm worth supporting as one who's taking the gospel because I believe the gospel as it has always been preached. And he's laid that out in amazing detail, but it is not until he gets to this chapter that we find an imperative command in the letter. The first imperative shows up in verse 11. The first imperative that we find in Romans is in verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Because of the fact that Christ is alive and Christ is not dead, because Christ has killed sin, has put to death sin and death, and we are in Christ if we have believed in Him, and we are as alive as He is alive if we are in Him. We are to think on that reality and meditate on that reality and consider that reality to be ours. And then in verse 12... He draws an implication from that. Having considered ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Remember I said just a moment ago that verse 11 is the first imperative. He evidently wants to get on a roll because the second imperative shows up in verse 12 and the third imperative shows up in verse 13. He's taking this seriously. I want you to think about the reality of what you are. And then I want you to act on that reality. And the first thing that he commands us to do is, again, in verse 12, and it's a command, but it's a negative command. Do not. The first implication that he draws to from our connection to Christ is, is a don't do this. And specifically, he says, don't let sin reign. Don't let sin be king, lord, sovereign over your life. That that idea of reigning is 
common in this passage. If you just go back to chapter 5, we find this reality. Nevertheless, verse 14, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even those who are not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So, so from the time of Adam forward, death was reigning. Death was king. Verse 17, if by the transgression of the one, death reigned and was king through the one, much more than those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness reign, the same word, kingly, will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Verse 21, so as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So sin was king, death was king, now Christ has come, Christ is king, and when you are in him, then, then death is dead to you. Sin is dead to you. And Paul says here, don't live as if king is still sin. That was your reality. Sin was sovereign. Sin is no longer sovereign. His lordship and mastery have been removed. Think about it like Nebuchadnezzar. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? Daniel chapter 4. He goes out and looks at his kingdom in Babylon and says, Look how great I am. Look at this amazing kingdom. And Daniel goes to him with a warning. Watch out. Interpreting the dream that God had given him. Don't be proud. It took a year, but it showed up again. Look at this kingdom. Wham! Sovereignty's removed. In an instant. And he's out of his mind. And it's in that way that sin has been removed from us. Brothers, it's not sovereign. It's not your master. You don't have to give in. Sin is not your king. Christ is your king. Says one theologian, self-indulgence is inconsistent with trust in the vicarious atonement. If you've trusted, then self-indulgence in sin is inappropriate, disconnected from this life. But notice that there's an implication. When he says, do not let sin reign, there's an implied assumption with that. What's the assumption? The assumption is not that sin is removed and eradicated and you will never ever sin again if you're in Christ. The assumption is that the battle will remain. And that there will be temptation. That sin still exists in the life of the believer. Says one of my favorite commentators. Believers do not have a serene existence from which sin has been blissfully excluded. They are still in the flesh as well as in Christ. Sin is still a force. But Paul's point is it is not supreme. So don't, don't go into this and don't walk away saying, well, sin's removed, I'm free. It's not a deal for you, it's not a deal for me. But I am free in this. Not that I will never ever sin again on this earth but that I never ever have to sin again on this earth. It doesn't exert its power over me in the way Christ does. It reminds us that now sin is a choice and sin does not have to be obeyed. 
Again, it exists, but it's not king. As John Murray, the renowned commentator on Romans says, it is only because sin does not reign that it can be said, therefore do not let sin reign. To say to the slave who has not been emancipated, do not behave as a slave, is to mock his enslavement. But to say to the same slave who has been set free is the necessary appeal to put him into to put into him the effect of the privileges and rights of his liberation. So in this case the sequence is sin does not have the dominion therefore do not allow it to reign. So sin still exists. Exists for you. Exists for me. Temptation is still out there. Temptation is still attracting us. It's going to be a lifelong battle. But the encouragement to us is that it is not no it is no longer our authority and we are no longer under its control. We're no longer under its dominion. Now notice what else Paul says in verse 12. He says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. What does he mean by that? Well, mortal body seems to indicate pretty clearly he's talking about this body, this flesh and blood, right? But he not only is talking about the flesh and blood part of our bodies, the fact that we have this physical body, that it's still under the constraint of sin. But notice verse 13, he says, don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin. There he's talking about the parts and pieces, if you will. Your head, your hands, your feet. Where you go, what you think, what you see, what you talk about, what you listen to. And so it's, It's the totality of everything that we are in our bodies, both the individual components and the overall nature. And then notice as well, he says in verse 13, present yourselves. And verse 12, he says, don't obey the lusts of sin, the desires of sin. And when he uses the pronoun yourselves, he's not just talking about seemingly our bodies, but he's talking about everything that makes us up. Everything that constitutes what we are. And the fact that he's alluded already in verse 12 to the lusts and the desires helps us think that he's alluding to not just the physical bodies, it's not just a physical problem, but it's a heart problem, it's a mind problem. It's an internal problem. It's what we're longing for. And so when Paul says not to present our bodies, he means, yes, our bodies, but he's talking about the totality of what we are. Don't keep going back to the same well of sin, either in what you're thinking and desiring and longing for or in what you're doing, both internally and externally. We should be fighting this war against sin. Paul said, don't let sin be king in your life. He wants us to fight that battle 
inwardly, outwardly, crate. How? How do we fight that battle? How does a believer dethrone sin in his life? Yeah, I read that story out of Chris Lungard's book. That's a story that resonates too well with me. Maybe with some of you too. I've been there. I've had those rages. And I've had a host of other temptations and desires and longings and expressions of evil. And you too. God just doesn't say, well, now you're in Christ. Let me take it all away. But he wants us to live out our lives in dependence on him. So every day we're aware he's God. I'm not. I'm dependent on him and he will be faithful to me. So how do we fight this fight? Paul is not explicit in verse 12, but. I think he does give us at least two implications for how to fight in verse 12. First implication is this. Sin is a choice that we make. Hear me. Sin is not something that happens to you. It's not like a it's not like being out on 377 and having some guy come out behind you at 85 miles an hour and rear-end you. And you were You were under the limit. You were driving in an appropriate way. You were signaling when you were supposed to signal. And he ran you down. That's something that happens to you. Cancer is something that happens to you. Colds and allergies are something that happens to you. That's not the way it is with sin. Sin is the overflow of our minds and our wills. And it can be acted against. We do not have to do it. And that means, brothers and sisters, that whenever we sin in that moment, we're saying, this is the best option I have. This is the wisest choice I can make. This will bring about the best ends in my life. Now, I don't think any of us are consciously thinking that, but that's what's going on internally. If sin is a choice that we have to make, then I would submit to you that we need to decide ahead of time what we're going to do when we're going to be tempted. Years ago, decades ago, I learned the term pre-decide. Pre-decide. Before you get into a situation where you're going to be tempted, decide what you will do. Decide what links you're going to click. Click. Before they are offered to you. Decide how much money you will spend in the store. Before you go in. Which is not fair when you go to the clearance bin at Kroger. But. Decide how much food you're going to eat before you get to the table. Decide what you will say before you enter a difficult conversation. Decide how you will serve. When you get at home. Um, There's been more than one occasion, regularly in fact, particularly lately. I'm thinking as I'm driving home, what's Regine's day been like? Where has she been? What's she done? What kind of things might be a blessing to her when I get home? How can I help her? 
That's predeciding. We have to have a plan of attack against sin before it comes calling. Be intentional, purposeful, decisive to fight against sin. You will never win the battle against sin until you recognize that you are in a battle and that you can and you must act against it. If you wait till the temptation, you're done. We might summarize this as saying, stop making plans to sin and start planning for righteousness. Almost sounds biblical, doesn't it? Almost sounds like 13, 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Be careful of your choices. Second implication. We engage our whole body in the response to sin and temptation because we're whole bodied people. So we do at least two things. We command our body not to do certain things. We tell our mouths not to speak a critical, sarcastic, angry word. We tell our feet not to take us to a place where we will covet. And we tell our eyes not to look at immoral images or immoral words. We're deciding ahead of time, telling our bodies, don't do that. And then also along with that, we think in a way so that our desires are changed. We control and order and direct our desires and longings. Again, the things you long for don't just happen to you. They're the overflow of what you and I value. And so when I, when I walk into Baked, which is a great place to go and a terrible place for me at the same time, and I see that cinnamon roll, And my eyes bug out. And I say, I love cinnamon rolls. And I do love cinnamon rolls. My response to that cinnamon roll is the overflow of the affections that for decades I've put on cinnamon rolls. Now, that's a safe example. But you can extrapolate that out. To anything you and I desire. The desire doesn't come on us. The desire comes out of us. The desire is a problem of the heart, right? That's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6. It's a heart issue. It's flowing out of us. And if you want to fight against sin, if I want to fight against sin, we have to change our desires. Not just changing what we do. It's helpful for me not to go into baked. I mean, I have friends that work at baked, so I like going in there to see them, but it's not safe for me to go in. So, okay, don't go to baked. You're laughing. It's true. (laughs) But that's not the real issue, is it? It's a hard issue. What are you longing for, Terry? What are you wanting? And that's what needs to change. That God gave this command not to let sin reign is an encouragement to us, brothers. It's not just direction. It is. It's a command. It's an imperative. It's something to do. But it's also an encouragement. It's an encouragement that he has given us what we need to win this battle. It's true that we cannot remove every sin from our lives, but we can 
grow in Christ's likeness. We can make progress in moving towards Christ. We can remove sin's kingship over our lives. So the first way to fight against sin is to refuse to let it be our master. The second way is be steadfast, not to use your life in unrighteous service. Verse 13, and do not, again, another negative, go on presenting. What does that imply? That implies that they already were doing this. So he's telling them to stop something that was already their practice or their temptation. Do not go on presenting the members, the parts of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness. When he says, do not go on presenting, that word presenting has the idea of putting oneself at another's disposal or another's use. It's offering oneself in help to another or offering oneself to serve another. And Paul is using the negative of the present tense. So he's talking about stopping something that they've already done and stopping a habitual pattern. This is this is the pattern. Stop doing that. It's a reminder again that this is a constant and regular battle every day and throughout every day for every believer. Hear me. It's not unusual when you're tempted to sin. Don't think, oh, what's this weird thing that's happened? There's temptation. No, it's the norm. It's the world in which we live. It's a reality. But the believer is able to say no, and the believer is able to say, yes, that's a temptation. No, I will not serve it. It's not been given to me by Christ to serve. Notice again what else Paul says about this. Do not go on presenting the members of your body. Not just just the totality of our body, but the individual members, every aspect of, of the person. Nothing in you should be used to serve sin. It's not enough to say, well, I'm not going to the mall. I'll just look on Amazon. And that's not enough. If you want to fight against greed and covetousness and conspicuous consumption. No, Paul says nothing in you should be used to serve sin. Just a a side note. This is free. He says, don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin. It's the most common word. The word sin there is the most common word that's used in the New Testament for sin. It's a word uh, that you might be familiar with. It's hamartia. It's the word from which we get the doctrine of sin, hamartiology. And it's typically described as it's like there's a bullseye straight ahead at that door for me, right? And it's there's there's this target and I've got a bow and arrow and I pull the arrow back and... You know, I shoot at the target and I miss it. I'm just, you know, I'm off center. I miss the mark. That's true. It does mean to miss the mark. But that explanation misses the mark of missing the mark. Because the bullseye's there. That's the standard that God says I'm to follow. But in sin and in rebellion, I say, "I I don't want to hit that mark. I want that mark over there. And I pursue that reality. So it's not just missing the mark. It's rebellion of the highest order. 
and what we do in serving that sin and rebellion is the parts of our body, the members of our body that he says when we do that, notice he says they become instruments of unrighteousness. You might translate that not just instruments, but tools. Think about tools of a carpenter. So when we sin, that sin becomes to us and the parts of our body with which we sin become, in a sense, tools like a carpenter. But it's even a stronger image than that. It's weapons of warfare. And it's a reminder to us that when we're fighting, we're in a battle. I've already said it. We're not on vacation. I wish we were, but we're not. Vacation's coming. In the not too distant future, when we get to glory. But this is not vacation now. This is war now. And we need the mindset of war. That when I use my body to service sin... I've allowed my body and my mind, my will, to become an instrument of Satan's warfare instead of God's warfare. We might say it this way. There is no good time and there is no good place for the believer to use his body for unrighteousness might just ask ourselves this when the temptation comes and we have a proclivity to go a particular direction that's away from the standard that God has said to just ask ourselves this question is now a good time for unrighteousness is now a good time for rebellion Uh, I think you and I both know what the answer is going to be it's never a good time for unrighteousness To be opposed to the righteousness of God and to use our bodies and the members of our bodies in ways that he has not designed for us to be used to use them. Is not just to be deriding the name of God. It is not just an affront to God. It is to be wholly opposed to God. In that moment when we engage in sin, we are saying, I don't care what you have said, I know better. You are not king, I am king. There is never a good time to do unrighteousness. And when we do unrighteousness, we're serving Satan's ends and not serving Christ's ends. We might remind ourselves of a little children's song that's helpful to remind us not to use our bodies in the service of sin. You remember this? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. There's a father up above, and he's looking down in love. So be careful, little mouth, 
what you say. What we do with our bodies is not secondary. It's essential. And what we do with our bodies tells who we're serving in that moment. And so for me, as well as for you, brothers and sisters, we need to be careful. What am I serving? What am I longing for? What am I doing in this moment? Who's my master? Oh, may we be intentional and purposeful for how we use our lives and our bodies. And might we use some of the resources that he has given us, which is provided in the next part of the verse, last part of verse 13. Do not use your lives in unrighteous service, but be steadfast to use your life to serve God. In contrast to using our bodies to serve sin, we should be using them to serve God. Notice what Paul says. Do not go on presenting. Middle of the verse. But contrast instead of present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of unrighteousness to God. So the totality of what you are, inward and outward, and the particulars. So again, body and soul, every part of you engaged in presenting yourself to God, offering yourself to Him to serve Him. And again, this is a reminder because God has commanded us to do this. It's something that He's equipped us to do. You can do this. It's, it's not a matter of, well, you've told me to do this, God, but I can't do it. No, I've told you to do it because I've equipped you to do it in Christ. You're not helpless in that moment. I've given you what you need. It's a matter of the will. And notice that Paul says, you're to present yourselves to God. In the previous phrase, he said, don't present yourselves to what? To sin. And in case we don't fully understand. He's making a very clear contrast. It's either following sin, following the flesh, following the king of sin, Satan, or following God and putting yourself in submission to him. Those are the only two choices. So put yourself in service to him. Why? Why would you do that? Notice what he says. Present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead. You, you do that. You say, I'm going to serve God and I'm going to follow Him. I'm going to be obedient to Him. I'm going to submit myself to Him. I'm going to put off sin and I'm going to follow righteousness because I am in Christ. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we've been buried with Him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. He's alive, we're alive. And that's his point. We live this way because this is now our new reality. We were dead. We were in bondage. We were enslaved. But now we are alive in Christ. Brothers and sisters, you are no more dead in your sin than Christ is dead. And because he is at the right hand of the Father, ascended, fully alive. If you are in him, 
that same reality is true of you as well. You are fully alive. You are not dead. Which is why Paul says, present yourselves to God. Says the same thing, chapter 12, doesn't he? I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So indulging, instead of indulging the flesh, we indulge ourselves in the service of Christ. If you're following along with what I'm thinking or what I'm saying, you might be thinking, that kind of sounds familiar. Yeah, it's, it's what we call the process of sanctification. And sanctification is simply putting off the sin to which we have died and putting on a corresponding act of righteousness that is opposite of the sin that we put off. And Paul teases that out in Ephesians chapter 4 where he says instead of being angry and hostile towards others, be quick to reconcile and confess. Instead of tearing down with critical words, use your words to build up others. Instead of stealing from others, work hard so you can give. Instead of pridefully waiting for others to serve, humbly serve others. Instead of greedily using all of your resources for yourself by acquiring and hoarding things, we give away to the benefit of the others. And that's what Paul's doing. He's saying instead of servicing sin, serve Christ. Because you're alive in Him. And again, he draws attention here in verse 13 to the instruments of unrighteousness and the instruments of righteousness. And again, that's warfare language. It's reminding us that we're in a battle against sin. And because we're in a war, we have to fight, be vigorous and attentive, prepare, put on the armor, and go into each day ready to fight. Remember, no one, no one accidentally slides into righteousness. We become righteous, we become sanctified by the work of God in us and then applying the diligence and persistence that God has given us to be righteous. So Paul says, use your life, be intentional, be purposeful to use your life to serve Him. Why? Why would you do that? Verse 14, one more implication. Be steadfast. Because you will master sin. When we talk about sanctification, we talk about putting off, putting on. I just mentioned that, right? You put off sin, put on righteousness. How do you do that? The, the part of the saying that often gets left unsaid, it just, you know, it's kind of a gutted out. Stop doing that. Do start doing this. Except what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 is you also have to renew your mind. There's a new way to think. You put that sin off because you're thinking about it in a new way. And you put on that corresponding act of righteousness because you're thinking about it in a new way. And in verse 14, Paul's giving us the new way to think. Why should I spend all this time working against sin and battling sin and being vigilant against sin? Because it's so hard. Because of what he has provided for us. Verse 14. For sin will not 
be master over you. The word master is the same word that's used in verse 9. It's the same word group as the word Lord. So it means sin will not be Lord over you. The sin will not rule over you. And brothers and sisters, I want you to notice this. It is a promise from the throne of God. It will not master you. Because you are a believer, sin will not be your master, even in this life, because. Why can we say so confidently, sin won't be a master over us? Look at verse 9. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. Sin and death don't master Christ. And because of that, if we're in Christ, they don't master us either. Brothers and sisters, we can be bold in fighting against sin because we know it's not the master. It's not the king. Sometimes it feels like it's the master. Sometimes it feels like it's the Lord. Sometimes it feels like we're powerless against sin. And sometimes it feels like we will and even must fail in our battle. But this is a good reminder. It will not be master over you. Now, when he says that, again, he doesn't mean you'll never ever battle against sin again. No, no, no. He is saying there's going to be a battle, but you're not going to lose. When you're in Christ, you will become victor over it. And it's it's a little bit of a reminder to us that there is a difference between sin's rulership over us and the constant battle with sin that sometimes results in losses to that temptation. Hear me. One loss or even intermittent losses does not mean that sin is the master. It just means you're in the flesh. It doesn't mean that sin is king. There's a massive difference between the one who is fighting against sin and sometimes fail and then repents and the one who is willfully and even joyfully embracing his sin as a pattern and a lifestyle. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, take confidence in the fact that sin is not your master. Christ is your Lord. Sin is not your Lord. And it will not ultimately be your Lord. But saying that, we also have to recognize that there are some, maybe even some here in this room this morning that are living a pattern of life that is consistent indulging of sin. It's an ongoing, habitual, regular, unrelenting, unrepenting pattern. If that is your situation, I cannot say because I do not know your heart, I cannot say with complete confidence 
You're not a believer, but brother, it appears that you're not a believer. Because the pattern of the believer is the battle against sin, not the indulgence of sin. And if you are unrelentingly giving in and you're not repenting and you're not moving towards transformation, might I submit to you it's time to examine your position and your relationship with Christ. And might I submit to you that what is needed in your life in this moment is repentance and a giving up of sin and an embracing of Christ. And the hope for you is not that you can keep doing sin. The hope for you is not that you can one day transform yourself and stop doing sin. No, the hope for you is that because Jesus Christ died on the cross, because the Father in heaven was satisfied with his death on the cross, that Jesus Christ is willing to impute, count, account, consider his righteousness to be yours. If you simply go to him and ask him, would you forgive me? And would you give me grace to follow in obedience after you? Would you believe? And would you repent? Listen to what Paul says in chapter 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all of us, everybody in this room. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. No matter your sin, no matter the pattern, no matter the length of it. His grace is enough to forgive you and free you from it. Why does he do that? For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just. He would do the right thing in saving and forgiving and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's not unfair and he pulls you out of your sin at the same time. My friend, if you are here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, might I exhort, encourage, compel you to repent and turn away from your sin. And the only way to turn away from it is to turn to Jesus Christ, your Savior. And when you do that, you will be master over your sin. Listen to the last paragraph, two paragraphs of the enemy within. You will win. You will fight and you will see your flesh crumble. It is God's pleasure not only to rescue you from hell, but to glorify with you, but to glorify you with Christ by making you like him. You will see through your flesh most deadly deception. You will turn your eyes away from it and its most appealing idols, and you will grow in self-discipline and courage. But this is not time to puff out your chest. It's Christ's blood, Christ's tenderness, and Christ's mercy on you. It's His Spirit's power filling you every step of the way. In every victory, lift your hands to heaven and give thanks and rejoice with a grateful heart in your Deliverer. He is faithful. Sin will not be your master. Many years ago, 
I received an email from a friend in seminary who had served as a pastor of a church for 20 years. It had been a number of months since we'd corresponded. I'd initiated contact and I just said, hey, what's going on? He sent me an email. And that email contained this sentence. I would appreciate your prayers as my wife and I recently separated. I left the church in January. I wish I could say it looked hopeful. But I gave up. And I fell. And that's hard to recover from. There's a lot of exposed functionality, functional theology in that sentence. But one thing is right. His sin wasn't accidental. He gave up. He quit. He wavered when he should have been steadfast. He quit walking with Christ and saw sin as more enticing than obedience to Christ. Friends, you and I are in a war. We're in a war. But it's a hopeful war. In our war against sin, our master has decisively and completely overcome and overwhelmed our enemy. So when we are in him, our enemy is no longer our master. We're no longer obliged to do the bidding of our enemy. But the enemy is relentless. He's defeated. But until the time that he is finally vanquished, he is still fighting against us, still attacking, and we must fight that enemy. The fight is long, the fight is hard, but our master has won the battle. So don't quit. Be steadfast against sin. Be unwavering in the fight because God has given us exactly what we need so we can fight the enemy of sin and experience victory. Be steadfast in your fight against sin. Our Father, we thank you for the provision of Christ. Thank you, well, this earth and the battles on this earth are relentless and unceasing as long as we are on this earth. Christ is not defeated. And because Christ is not defeated, we are not defeated. Because he is alive, we are alive. Because Satan is vanquished, we can say no. Not because we're so strong, but because our general, our master, our Lord is so strong. And we are in him. Might you give us boldness to fight? Even today, Father, might we become resolute against some of those things that have habitually ensnared us? And might we take new vigor in our battle against this war that will one day end when we see the face of our Savior and we're welcomed into his arms and sin will not only be vanquished, but it will be vanquished in our lives eternally. We thank you that sin will not be master over us. Might we walk in that reality with steadfastness.
In Christ's name, amen.